Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In the season three, we're looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And today we want to talk about a story called the fig tree, which can look strange unless you walk around in the world, and then you can see some new stuff that's pretty cool. Also, I've been learning that Bible study groups are using our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. Also, if you have a question or would like to maybe get us to teach a future episode, uh, we would love for you to contact us. You can DM us on our Instagram account at St. Luke's Beham, spell out saint, or you can send us a Facebook messenger uh, at St. Luke's Birmingham, also spell out saint. At any rate, we would love to hear from you. We would love your feedback, and any questions or suggestions are welcome. Well, what I want to say about the fig tree is simply this. Jesus always told stories, uh, but sometimes he enacted them. Sometimes he reenacted them. The best example of this, I think, is Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on a colt on the last uh, week of his life. If you've ever been there, you can see it right away. It's really, really hard to ride an animal in land like this. It's billy goat land going uh, down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then back up on the mountain that the Temple Mount sits sits on. It'd be a lot easier to walk than it would be to ride an animal. And a colt would mean an animal without a saddle. But Jesus was enacting a story or reenacting a story that they all knew. It was First of all, it was a promise from Zechariah chapter 9 that the Messiah would arrive on a colt. But also in their world, a cult was very carefully crafted political theater. It means something had been won. For instance, if a king or a general needed a battle to be finished, he would ride a war horse, which means there was still work that needed to be done. But a cult means you were finished. And so can you imagine the electricity of this rabbi from Galilee uh, that everybody's been talking about? They all know about the miracles. They know about the teachings and the sayings, riding in on a cult like a conquering hero. That's on Sunday. What I'm about to read to you is the story of the fig tree, which is Mark chapter 11, verse 12, which is what happens the day after on Monday. And just like Sunday, this too is an enacted parable. I'll read a few verses and then we'll get started. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when the evening came, Jesus and his disciples went and left for the city. Well, the first thing that I want to note about this story, like the woman and child in the in the last episode, the story of a woman with the hemorrhage and then the dying girl, uh, they're both the same story. In other words, this story, like that story, are two stories sandwiched together that inform each other or interpret each other. 
I also think it would be helpful not only to understand that these two stories are interrelated, but also there's a helpful note about fig trees that's embedded even in Mark's gospel. Mark tells us it was not the season for figs. Figs are a fruit that come out in the late summer. And so in the Passover would be much earlier in the year. However, in the spring, there are early figs, and that's simply a little bitty fruit that's edible, but gives you the indication about the yield of the fig tree later on. So it's possible, I mean, this little botanical fact reminds us that Jesus knew what he was doing. He was looking for early figs uh, to see that if there would be anything to make this tree edible or not. And you can eat them, they just don't taste very good. But regardless of what we might say about fig trees, and regardless of what we might even say about money changers, these two stories sandwiched together are not really about a tree, and they're not really about money changers in the temple. I mean, let's remember, it's not the season for figs. And two, money changing was a legitimate business. No, these two stories are about the temple. I've got a story to tell you about the Temple Mount. Uh, I was able to travel to Israel this past summer before the borders were open uh, due to COVID, which means that there are very, very few outsiders in Israel last summer. A few, a few people with family members, perhaps in Israel, a few pilgrims who are perhaps had children lined up for a bar mitzvah, but very, very few outsiders, which means that Jerusalem only had the local people, which means that early one morning I was able to walk up on the Temple Mount, and I was just all alone. And I could really, really appreciate, without the crowds, uh, the size and the grandeur of the Temple Mount. Now, we refer to the temple itself as Herod's Temple, and it gets confusing if you want to start looking stuff up, because it also is known as the Second Temple. But it worked this way. Uh, Solomon's Temple was the first temple, and it was destroyed uh, by the Babylonians at the time of the exile, some 600 years before Jesus. And then they rebuilt a temple when they got home. That's the second temple. But then it was Herod about 20 years before Jesus' birth and would continue for almost 80 years, right up until the time it was destroyed, would rebuild the temple. And we call that one Herod's temple because it's just an upgrade. It was truly the wonder of the ancient world. You know, Herod, like any, any good despot, knew that he needed to control commerce which he did through a super port called Caesarea Maritima that he created on the coast. He needed to he needed to control defense and the army, which he did really through a super weapon that we call Masada, which is down near the Dead Sea, a fort that he could escape to at any time. And he also needed to control their thought, which he did by turning uh, by turning the temple, the second temple in Jerusalem, into something that would be behold would be something to behold, something to travel days for, something to see every year of your life for the entirety, right? Pilgrims from all over the world would travel to see this, this city go from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of thousands of people, all presided over by a beautiful temple complex. What I'm beginning to appreciate with my little visit to the Temple Mount is that the tabletop structure, that may well be the wonder of the ancient world. What had been 17 acres is now 36 acres. It's still there. The Temple Mount looks like a giant altar sitting in the middle of the holiest city on planet Earth, some 500 yards by 325 yards, which means that the surface area is 35 football fields of Jerusalem stone. It is crazy beautiful. And then the temple itself was twice the height of the Dome of the Rock today, that beautiful golden dome, that holy spot for Islam that dominates the city skyline. The temple would have towered even over that. And for reference, I like to say that um, 
One event that electrified the late 19th century America was the invention of the Ferris wheel. It was created with newly structured structured steel, which would then enable the building of skyscrapers later. But until then, the Ferris wheel was so electric because no one had ever been that high before. And so, so that so that the tallest building in America, I'm pretty sure, was the Washington Monument. And that gives you a sense of how height in the ancient world would have inspired them. And in this forecourt of this tallest building anyone had ever seen, was a whole lot of business, a bazaar, money changers, souvenirs, sacrificial animals. It, it all makes sense to me. One historian even suggests that the Temple Mount was a shortcut. It was. It was a shortcut for people traveling from one part of the city to the other. And the point of it all is it was demeaning. It was necessary, but it was demeaning. I, I want to remind you what a money changer would be there to do. If you, were, if you were traveling from, say, one of the farthest points of the Roman world, uh, a Jewish person in a Greek-speaking place, you would, come, you would come down there with coins that you couldn't use because the coins would have had the face of the emperor upon them. So those needed to be changed with coins that are called aniaconic, coins with no image. It was a very, very important business. If you were to walk from Galilee, say down the Jordan River Valley, and then up the Jericho Road four or five days, you couldn't carry a sacrificial animal with you. You, you would buy that when, simply when you got to Jerusalem. It was hard to carry a bird uh, just about anywhere. But yet, this business, it simply, it simply was less than what God had dreamed for God's house, and they should have known. Jesus called them a den of robbers, which is exactly what Jeremiah said some 700 years before. Um, in the book of Jeremiah, which happens about 600 years before, before Jesus' birth, they had a little bit of a different problem. People were just simply not, not being different in the way that the Bible asked them to be different. They simply weren't being faithful, but yet they would run into the cover of the temple when they thought they'd gotten in any kind of trouble. Uh, they were they were not acting as faithful Hebrew people, yet they were run to the cover of the temple because they thought God lived there. They were uh, chasing foreign gods, but they would run into the cover of the temple because they felt like that was hedging their bets or that having God living in their city was an amulet of some sort. And so Jeremiah says this, and he, and he calls them out on it again and again. But in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 11, he says, Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. They had turned it into a den of robbers, but but that's a phrase that we've picked up from the English usage. That's an idiom that is really inherited from the King James uh, Bible. The original Hebrew language says you've become you've turned my house into a cave of outlaws, which would make sense to them because down by the Dead Sea there are these caves down in the Badlands where all the really bad guys would would hide out after they after they robbed you on the road, right? And so Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Jeremiah is saying, you've turned my house, you've turned my house into a hole in the wall for bad guys. They should have known. The temple had become a distraction. There is an important text, speaking of temples and distractions, that I, I, would, I will submit as one of the more important stories of the Bible that either we don't know or we overlook. And it's down in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's the story of King David building the first temple in the first place, or wanting to build it. His son Solomon would be the one to build it, but he has the dream, he has the idea. And it goes like this. David is on top of his game. David has a unified country. He's got 12 tribes all, all united now. He's got a capital city. 
that he's just created. He's he's wrested it from uh, the local Jebusites. It's Jerusalem is his city now. And David is just firing on all cylinders, and he wants to build God a house. Now, I need to remind you that the second half of the book of Exodus is a very, very detailed account of God not wanting a house, but rather a tent. Specific instructions. It's all about stitching, all about the colors, all about the size of the tabernacle, all about what to put in it, which means that God wants us to be intentional about our religion, but also movable, able to pivot, able to change when we can. Uh, Temples don't move so well. Temples can be a distraction, and temples are the kinds of things that kings want. Another thing that we need to remember when we dig down into the Hebrew scriptures is that God worried mightily when they wanted a king because kings can take you down trails that you need not go. Kings can forget to be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different. God wanted the Hebrews to be a a holy nation, and yet they asked for a king, and that can be mighty unholy if you have the wrong leader. So God said, I'll give you a king, but I'll always give you prophets to speak the truth to you. That's the purpose of the prophets. And so here we have David doing what kings do. He has a big idea. I think I want to build a house for God. Well, let's read it. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. This is God's word back through the prophet Nathan. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Whenever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, Did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God is worried that a house will take their eye off the ball. A house will distract them. Someone at the church asked me a question not too long ago, which caused me to dig and it was kind of fun to to discover this. They said, well, if, if the second half of the book of Exodus is all about the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, where are God's instructions for the temple? And actually, there aren't instructions for the building of the temple. Solomon gave all the instructions for the building of the temple. Solomon got all fired up and built this really, really pretty house for God that God never asked for. And then at the in 1 Kings chapter 6, when he gets the darn thing built, God has a word for Solomon. And it's 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will establish my promise with you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Wow, there is a condition here. If you follow me, I will dwell with you. But you see, temples, like like other distractions, can take our eye off the ball. They can get us thinking that uh, that we that we've got religion when in reality our hearts are far from God. It can get us thinking that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing when we're really just checking boxes and failing to follow wherever God may lead us. I hope you can see my point by now. The wonder of the ancient world was like a fig tree with no fruit. The story's not about a tree, and it's not even about the temple business. It's about, it's about they're taking their eye off the ball. In our last episode, we had a lesson from Exodus that's another one of these foundational stories that interpret all the others. Uh, Moses is asking God for a second chance. Moses actually 
uh, destroyed the uh, original Ten Commandments because he he walked down um, he walked down the holy mountain of God and he sees that they've forgotten and they built built a golden calf and anyway you think that the story is going to uh, end there and so so God asked Moses for uh, excuse me Moses asked God for a second chance a new uh, new tablets of the law and then he asked if he it could see God's face. Here's what happens. Moses says, this is Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Same story again and again. Uh, Exodus 33, 18. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses asked for glory. What he gets is goodness. It's one thing to be astounded by a building. It's another thing to experience God. And this happens even to this very day. Our churches can be the best run nonprofits in the city, but do we have a heart for where God is leading us? Do we have a heart for people? Are we worshiping a stained glass window? Or or do we have Jesus in our souls? It's the difference between religion and a relationship. And so we're told in Mark chapter 11 that he called them a den of robbers, just as Jeremiah did, and they conspired to kill him, which is what they'd always been wanting to do ever since Mark chapter 3. I like to tell my congregation and encourage people to read Mark's gospel as a whole. It takes about 45 minutes. It's like a well-crafted short story. And if you read that, you'll connect dots that you've never seen before. So for instance, way back in chapter 3, which is to say at the very beginning, Jesus arrives in Galilee. He's in a synagogue on a Sabbath morning, and they bring this man who has a withered hand to him, a suffering person, because they want to trick Jesus into healing him on the Sabbath. Can you begin to see that it's always the same story, the difference between religion and relationship? I mean, it's the difference between Sabbath rules and someone suffering with a withered hand. They were able to compartmentalize because this is what temples do. This is what religion can do. It can take our eye off the ball, and it can take us away from a living God who's always moving, always healing, and always surprising in new ways. And it makes Jesus so angry that he he looks at them, specifically in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, looks at them with anger. And it's a specific word, and it's only used once. It's a blind rage. Their neglect of a suffering person in the face of religion throws him into a blind rage. So what we have is a showdown. Now, as we continue in the story of the last week of Jesus' life, I want to tell you that just outside the city walls in the shadow of the temple, on an east-west road leading into Jerusalem, there's a quarry. A quarry was stone that that was imperfect. It wasn't used, so it was left as a high, as sort of a high mountain right outside the city walls, and they called it Golgotha, or the place of the skull. And it's close. The Romans, the Romans like to choose places of execution where they could put you up high so people could see you so that they could warn you. We were all raised with a hymn called On a Hill Far Away Stood an Old Rugged Cross, but that hill was not far away, uh, and that cross was very, very near the very temple that Herod would turn into the wonder of the ancient world, the very temple that God said he didn't want way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. What we see here is a story of a fig tree the story of, of, of a temple cleansing, it's really a bigger story. This is a cosmic showdown between God and a house. So I hope you're beginning to experience the drama now of Mark 
in the world of Jesus seen through the Gospel of Mark, and I hope that you'll hang with me as we inch just a little bit closer to this ultimate showdown. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time.